0: This is Pastor Dan. Just want to thank you for choosing this podcast by New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church of East Toledo. Join us today in reaching new heights in Jesus. In this episode, look for the well-worn way. It's the wrong way, but it's a way that a lot of people go. And we're going to choose to go a different way today. We're going to take the path less traveled by. been inspired this week. Does anybody know, coming tape, does anybody know what the word inspired actually means? I can see the wheels turning. Alright, tell me. What does it mean? That's what we use it for most of the time, isn't it? Like, I was inspired to go to work, or I was inspired to give a gift, or that's how how we usually use it, right? What is the actual definition of the word? Does anybody know?
1: Coordination. Okay. Getting
0: closer. Receive
1: encouragement
0: from God. Okay, that's really close now. Really, really, almost on target. You guys really got it? Okay. the, The original place that it comes from is it means God breathed. That's what the word actually means. So, when we act in a way that encourages somebody to do something or feel good about what they did, or encourages them to move forward, uh, motivate them, whatever like that, we are sort of acting out what God did, right? So, we know that all Scripture is inspired of the Lord, and so it's all God breathed. God gave us the Word of God to study it, to live by it. Um, I guess David would certainly say that we ought to hide it in our heart. We have plenty of encouragement, inspiration, motivation in the Word of God itself to push us to want to know it better and live by it and so on. Um, So, have you studied your Bible this week? Did you see anything in Scripture? Something that might have made you go, hmm. Maybe something that you could share with us, even if it felt like it was only for you. Because sometimes in how you see things, that's how others learn to see things. I see how that's specific to you. Now I'm looking for something that's specific to me in the same way. How about it? What do you got to share? It's been a rough week. I had an interesting experience in studying my Bible this week. I went and I've went. i been using the YouVersion Bible app to do my Bible study every morning. And my Bible study, like, sometimes it's only, you might literally only take a few minutes. You know? Uh, the idea of a discipline is you plan to do it a certain way, right? So when people do like discipline their bodies, they say, well, I'm gonna make sure I go to sleep at a certain time every night. I'm gonna make sure I drink this much water. I'm gonna make sure I work out this many times a week or on this day of the week. Um, and, I, and then they start going and I'm gonna do, like do 10 reps like this. I'm gonna do 10 reps like this. I'm gonna do 10 reps like this. And then a few <coughs> weeks later, it's like, i better do 12 now because the 10's pretty easy. And then it's 20. And then it's 30. So you might start with, I'm just going to do three minutes or whatever. Or you might say, like I I tried to do, uh, that I'm going to do it first thing in the morning, every morning, before I do anything else. So I've been laying in my bed in the morning, uh, before I do anything else, grabbing my YouVersion Bible app, and reading a Bible verse, or more than one in some cases, and, and then writing something, typing something on my phone. And I discovered... That for the last, so, and I was putting them on there publicly, but somehow the public got switched to private, and so I had to go on yesterday morning after I did my Bible study, I go on, and I had to change all of the last two and a half weeks or so of those to public uh, because that was my that was part of my discipline. I said I was going to do that. I was going to make it public, so if people wanted to see what I was doing, they can. So if you're in the YouVersion Bible app, and if you have notifications turned on, and you're following my public posts. I apologize for yesterday morning because I probably sent you about 20 posts. If you're not, you can, and you don't have to turn the notifications on, but they're there. And then you might have something different and you can comment on my comment. You're like, well, I can't be motivated, but then if you read mine and disagree with me, that'll motivate you. But like, yeah, Pastor Dan said this, but I can say this is that, you know, whatever, and we'll get we'll get some discussion going if you want to do that. But this morning I went to I was working my sermon late last night and I had a bad headache. And it lasted, it started about 8.30 And it lasted until about 1.30 in the morning And it was really bad And I couldn't hardly finish my sermon I was trying really hard to finish it up And put it in final form And I couldn't get there And it, my head hurt really bad And I finally broke down at 1.30 in the morning Took some uh, ibuprofen And said, I'm going to have to do it tomorrow morning So I woke up this morning First thing and Guess what was on my mind? Finishing my sermon And for the first time in 58 days the first thing I did in the morning was not study my Bible. So no matter what you do, no matter how you you set your disciplines, your rules, you realize it may fall apart. There may come a time where you don't do it the way you had intended to do it. But guess what I'll do? I hope I'll do first thing tomorrow morning is study my Bible. So it ain't over yet. And I did. I started with my sermon and then I was like 10 minutes into it and I went, wait a minute. I didn't do my Bible study. And so I stopped and went back. But I cannot say that 58 days... 59 days in a row, whatever it is, I I can't say I did it every day, that many days in a row, first thing, because I blew it this morning, okay? So I'm being transparent about my Bible study, and by my saying, have you seen anything this week, and everybody's saying, no, I I really haven't seen anything, y'all are being transparent about your Bible study, too. Either you're saying, I didn't study my Bible this week, or you're saying, I did and I just don't have anything to share, and I would encourage you to think it's a service. Think of it as a service. Think, when you're reading your Bible, think, what can I share? What can I talk about? Okay? So we're just going to pray and jump back into worship. But I'm, remember, we are in the middle of our push for uh, Bible study as a discipline, and it will end. And you will not see us push this hard for Bible study for probably five years. So if you can't just begin to train yourself and discipline yourself to study your Bible now, then you're going to have to do it without somebody standing up here week after week after week pushing you to do that. Okay? So, I encourage you to do that. All right. So we need somebody to pray for us as we transition, and uh, uh, you know, always the safe bet and encourage. All right, you want to do that? All right. All right. Stacy's gonna pray for us. So, so. Oh no, I want to pray. Oh, you want to say Stacey. something? Yeah. Stacy wants to say something. Yeah.
1: Um, it, well, I listen to praise and worship a lot because sometimes when I read, some days I don't do good and I can't remember. But there's a hymn, it's really, it's old from when I was younger. But it was before that. It's called Trust and Obey. Uh And some of the words are when we abide with the Lord and the light of his word, the Lord, he sheds on our way. And there's no words to it. It's as simple as trust and obey. Even the days I don't feel God, I know God's there. Because God is there. Not that faithful, God is faithful. And some days it's just as simple to trust and obey.
0: Amen. That's, That's very good. I love that song. That's good. I forgot about it until you just mentioned it, but I can hear a little bit of the chorus. <laughs> All right. So how about we pray? Is there a young person in the room that will pray with us, pray for us today? Would you do that, Ariana? Okay, Ariana, right. to so pray for us. Remember the tithes and offerings, okay? All right, here we go. that you were praying to Jesus and so was I and we're united. Let's praise him today. This and your- We are in the midst of a project, in case you didn't know, with that note-taking thing. We are writing a book. We're going to put the notes all together and uh, give credit where credit is due when we are through. Um, and I think it's going, to be just, it's going to be really cool. I'm super excited about it. Uh, but the youth have been working on that with me and growing a lot through that process. And I read their notes and I'm blessed. I read a note uh, over the week, RJ and I met. Uh, Friday afternoon, actually, and we read through some of those notes. And uh, the one note that, the, that one of the young ladies had written about made me cry. It was so perfectly on target and summed up the scripture. I was like, wow, that, that felt inspired. It was really good. And it's always good. But that one just really touched my heart. So I went to an ice cream shop. You ever go to an ice cream shop? Hmm? I hope so, because that's a nice place to be, an ice cream shop, you know what I'm saying? Uh, But that being said, some people like ice cream, some people don't, but I like ice cream. And I went to an ice cream shop, and in the ice cream shop, uh, they had 30 wonderful flavors of ice cream. But they really only had about five that I really like, you know what I'm saying? So I could narrow it down real fast to about five types of ice cream. Then I looked up on the board, and they had like 30 different toppings, that you could choose from for your ice cream, different kinds of candy and chocolate syrup and just, just just all kind of variety. But I was able to narrow it down to about 10 that I really like, You know that I could, that I could stomach and I wasn't gonna eat anything that was just purely candy because I, I don't eat candy. Uh, I gave that up quite a long time ago now. And so I was looking at different toppings and things and I got down to about 10 and then I thought to myself, well, if there are five kinds of ice cream and there are 10 toppings that I might put on each of those kinds of ice cream, How many total combinations are there? And I thought, man, that's gotta be a lot. I'm gonna have to come back to this ice cream shop like every day until I get through all these. Woe is me. Is there a mathematician in the house that knows how to calculate that mathematic formula? Five types of ice cream, 10 toppings? I am not the mathematician, okay? I may be the closest thing, but if it's true, it's only because I prepared, okay? All right, so I want you to bear that thought in mind, the many permutations of five flavors of ice cream and ten toppings, only ten. Not the 30 wonderful flavors, not the 30, 40 toppings, but just five types of ice cream with just ten possible toppings. Bear that thought in mind then with me as we go to the Scripture today, and we'll come back to it when we get to the points, okay? So grab your Bibles, if you would and go with me to 1st Samuel chapter 15. Amen. Uh-huh. This is God's word. You know what? This is maybe one of the least pleasant passages of God's word. It is a painful experience to apply the truths that are herein laid out to our own lives. Not like all those flavors of ice cream, but just kind of tough to swallow. So we're in 1st Samuel Chapter fifteen, and I'm actually going to begin in verse ten. Okay, now I think on the board we have through oh we do through twenty nine. I'm going to go through twenty nine. So uh, awesome, and if I feel so led, I may go to a little further. <laughs> but here we go. First Samuel chapter fifteen, beginning verse ten. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, now, "This is God speaking. I regret that I have made Saul king." Or he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. So, real quick, let's break down some things. First of all, you got Samuel; he's the high priest. You got Saul; he's the ordained, anointed king of Israel, right? And then you got God. God is the one who made Samuel high priest. God is the one who made Saul king. But in this story, we hear God saying to Samuel, the high priest, "I regret," and the word there is like uh, it's a Hebrew word; it's nakhalm. And you could use it for regret or repent. Like, I repent of having done this. I regret I did this, right? So it's sorrow at the action. So here we have God saying, I am sorry. I wish I had not, as if God is regretting making Saul king. And he said it. So you've you got to take it for face value. God said, I regret having made Saul king. And he says, because, or for, because, he has turned back from following me. Words, he's not doing what I would want him to do. And he has not carried out my commands. And that's very specific. So now we know there is something that God told Saul to do that Saul did not do. And it's going to come out in the passage. And Samuel was distressed. Ah, that hurts a little bit, doesn't it? And he cried out to the Lord all night. All night he's crying out to God. He's begging God. He's talking with God. How can this be so? And, and, and it's kind of like when you read that, you start thinking maybe he's sad for Saul. That the king of Israel is now going to be kicked down. Right? that God regrets he made him king, so he's, maybe he's praying for Saul. I submit to you that he's praying for something else. He's praying about something else. And you're going to see what it is by the end of the passage of Scripture. All night he cried out to the Lord. Verse 12 says, And Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. So Samuel gets up and he goes to Saul. And it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold he set up a monument for himself and then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. Okay, So Saul is given this awesome greeting, faith greeting to Samuel. And he says, I have carried out the command of the Lord. Well, that's good. So then Samuel's going to go, Phew, Man, that's a relief, right? God said you were not carrying out his commands, but you say you are carrying out, you have carried out his commands, so huh, God must have just been wrong. I doubt that. That doesn't sound right, does it? I don't think Samuel would say that, so I think immediately he's recognizing the contrast. And I, th- I would submit to you that Saul has so far gone that he has not carried out the commands of the Lord that he thinks despite he's not carrying out the commands of the Lord that he actually has carried out the command of the Lord. That's where he's at. And he would actually say to God's high priest, I have carried out the commands of the Lord even though the high priest has already been told by God that he has not carried out the commands of the Lord. Verse 14. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. Which is an interesting phrase, they are utterly destroyed. If you just bop back just one second toward the beginning of the chapter. You see, it says in, chapter, in verse 1, Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel and how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from, up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy, there's the phrase, utterly destroy, and the next word says everything, I think, all. Utterly destroy all that he has, and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And then over here we have Saul saying, Well, I followed the command of the Lord, and he says, The people kept back and spared the best of the sheep, the oxen, to sacrifice to, your, to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. See the contrast? He did not utterly destroy that which God told him to utterly destroy. He actually kept it back, thinking he could do a better thing with it. He's smarter than God, don't you know? That he would keep it back to do a better thing than whatever God told him. Just utterly destroy the best of the sheep and the oxen. What a waste that we would do that. That's just, God, that can't possibly be right. And so they kept it back. Now, he, it goes on a little further. Samuel said to Saul, wait, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. You tell me you followed exactly what God told you to do. You tell me that you spared the best to sacrifice it to God at Gilgal. Now let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night last night. And Saul said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes? And, and it, that is true, right? You remember the story of Saul being anointed? Like right before he was about to be anointed, where was Saul? He was hiding amongst the baggage. Like he was afraid. He knew he was not worthy of being king, and he was hiding. Right? So they call him out, they're going to anoint him. And he says, and then now, we'll fast forward to this point, Samuel says, is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel? Now, before we go any further, I want to say to you, you can submit right there, is it not true that you were unworthy in your own eyes? And when you were unworthy in your own eyes, the God of heaven said you could be called a child of God? He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and He chose you. If you were never not worthy in your own eyes, then when He elevated you to this position, it probably didn't come as any surprise to you. And maybe that leads you to a place where you don't feel like you have very much commitment to God. But if you realize that you were unworthy of the great grace of God, of salvation, heaven, being called a child of God, then you, like Saul, need to pay attention to what's going on here because we are in danger of doing the very same thing. Is it not true, though you are little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. There's a very simple word, which we understand what it means. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord, and I went on the mission which the Lord sent me, and I have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things that were devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. So he's reasoning. It's very close. He's very close. But he didn't follow the commands of the Lord. And the only person in this conversation who doesn't seem to know it is Saul. I submit to you, probably in his heart of hearts, he does know it. But he's arguing, if you will, just this little compromise. We just did it a little bit differently. But we're going to sacrifice all those things. Notice that he doesn't mention that they're going to sacrifice the king, Agag. Verse 22, it says, And Samuel said, and now this, if you're reading along in your Bibles, you may have this like in poetic phrasing because the words are very poetically organized in the original. It says, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? that That fits beautifully with this topic because he's saying, does God want you to bring it back and sacrifice it to him or did God want you to do with it what you were supposed to do with it? What he told you to do with it? You say you're keeping it so that you can sacrifice and use it for the Lord. But the truth is, God just wanted you to do what he told you to do. But he says it poetically. He says, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. To heed is to listen to what God is saying and do it. Verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. Now, your translation may they there slightly different. This is the New American Standard I'm reading, but the rebellion word always sticks, but the divination word doesn't always stick. Divination is basically witchcraft. It's about telling the future by whatever it means, by controlling the future to a degree, but mostly by telling it the future so that you can maybe react to what might happen. So you get to figure out what's going to go on, and you're going to be who you want to be to try to fix what's going to go on. Right? So it's divination or witchcraft. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft or divination. And insubordination, that means not following the directions of your leader, which in this case is God, is as iniquity, which is just straight up sin or wickedness, and idolatry, which means worshipping someone or something else, declaring someone or something else valuable like God. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord. So back it up for a second for the full thought. He says, rebellion, when you don't do what you're supposed to do, is as the sin of divination or witchcraft. By the way, rebellion is as the sin of divination or witchcraft, not only when it's talking about God, right? Because there are other authorities. We have the king, we have the president, the governor, police officer, your parents, whatever, whoever in your life that God has placed as an authority, when you rebel, that's still rebellion. And he's saying this rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft or divination. You're rebelling trying to see or control the outcome. You know better than the authority that God has placed over you or than God himself is really what it's saying. So you rebel against any authority. And so rebelling against any authority, you're really rebelling against God. And this rebellion, it has like it's like divination. It's like witchcraft. Which, by the way, at least would say it's disgusting to God. He hates it. He despises it. He wants nothing to do with it. And he doesn't want it in his people. That's the minimum, it says. It also says things about it being addictive, about it being an easy road to go down, about it being comfortable. The more you rebel, the more comfortable you are with rebelling. The more you rebel and kind of get away with it, the more comfortable you are rebelling, thinking you're going to get away with it, and so on. Rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. And again, insubordination is not only insubordination to God, it's whenever you're insubordinate. Whenever you resist the leadership that God has placed in your life, the people that God has put over you, you're insubordinate. And so being, it's like iniquity or wickedness and idolatry, and we're comfortable with it, and it summons evil spirits, and it does all kinds of bad things that surround iniquity and idolatry, insubordination does. All of that is true because you have rejected the word of the Lord. When you are rebellious to someone who is in authority over you, you have rejected the word of the Lord. That's what he's saying. When you are insubordinate to someone who has been placed over top of you, you are rejecting the word of the Lord. And then he says, he has also rejected you from being king. And he tells Saul that Saul will lose his kingship. Chosen, ordained, and anointed by God, he will be removed. We'd like to think, wouldn't we, that these high standards are only applied to leaders. Moses was not allowed to go into the promised land because he struck the rock and chastised the Israelites when he was just supposed to talk to the rock. But he was a leader and got to set an example. He's got to be right, and he wasn't right, and so God can't let him receive the same rewards as everybody else. He's got to take him out. You realize that Moses, that man that was able to debate with God, who was able to intercede on behalf of the Israelites when God said, I'm just going to destroy Israel and start over with you, and he's like, No, just destroy me. I don't want that. That man was not allowed to see the promised land because he did not follow the commands of the Lord. And we like to think that's because they're leaders, because they're dominant personalities, they're held to a higher standard. I submit to you no. As a child of God, that man was held to a higher standard. As an originator of things to come in the kingdom of God, he was held to a higher standard. And you and I are the same as that. These are the reasons that people are held to this standard because when they are rebellious or insubordinate, they have rejected the word of the Lord. You don't have to be king. Elected to some office. You don't have to be a child rebelling against their parent specifically. There are no specifics here. If you have rejected the word of the Lord, you too will be rejected by the Lord. That's what it says. It hurts. Verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now he's got an excuse, a reason why, but other than that, it sounds like a repentance. He's, he's coming back to God. He's coming back to Samuel. And, and in the church, under the grace of Jesus Christ, we'd be like, yeah, one sinner repented. We're rejoicing. We're so excited. And we will receive you. And we'll cry with you. And we'll pray over you. And the grace of God is sufficient. How wonderful it is. Sounds like he's repentant. But he does say, because I feared the people and listened to their voice. So he's qualifying his decision. Verse 25, now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. All he wants to do is worship God. I mean, isn't that just what anybody should want? Please pardon my sin, forgive my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Verse 26 says, but Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and tore it, and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, And let's be very clear, that is exactly accurate. He had the kingdom of Israel. He was given the kingdom of Israel to take care of, to rule over, to lead, to be an example. All of those things. He had the kingdom. And he says, now God has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. And we we know that that will be David, but he doesn't name him here. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind. For he is not a man that he should change his mind. That verse at the end there, where you see the phrase change his mind in the New American standard, New American Standard, that word there is nocom. I mentioned it earlier. You remember what I said? It means to repent. To regret or draw back from the course of action. I submit to you that it sounds like Saul was repenting or drawing back. But we didn't start there. We started with this verse. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me. See, Saul had turned back from following God. He had repented, essentially, of, from, from following God. And God was repenting or regretting having made Saul king. But now we see, and I think this is why the, the New American Standard translates this way, and most of them do, but Some don't, because the original word is to repent or regret. Now we see it says, the glory of Israel, talking about God, will not lie or change his mind, in other words, or repent or regret, come back from that decision, for he is not a man that he should repent or regret his decisions. But the first verse said, God said, he regretted or repented of his decision to make Saul king. And the last verse, Samuel is saying, God is not a man that he should repent or regret his decisions. Three things I want you to see in the text, and then I hope we'll bring it all together. The first thing is, this thing that Saul did, is easy. It's literally easy. Any slight variance on a command of God, any slight variance of the truth, and it becomes what? Say it again. A falsehood. a falsehood, a lie. If you take the truth and you change it at all, any slight variance. For example, you're apologizing to somebody and you say you're sorry. You say, I'm sorry, but you have altered the I'm sorry. Any slight variance of the truth becomes a lie. And then let's say you wanted to change it back to be the truth. Could you slightly vary the lie that you have now created to make it be the truth? No. This is why it's so easy to vary from the commands of God and to vary from the truth. Because when you say the truth, it is the truth, and it stops. It has a period, there's no qualifications, there's no parentheses, there's no extra commas in there, it's just the truth. And then when you vary the truth slightly, it becomes a lie. I'll give you an example, same analogy. I'm so sorry I did that to you, but I had a good reason. But I am sorry, right? You go back and restate the beginning, but it doesn't fix the fact that you said you had a good reason in the middle. At the very least, we now have to understand the good reason, or we're required to accept your apology because you had a good reason. You're you're messing with the truth. And if you mess with the truth, the truth becomes a lie. You mess with a lie, it just becomes a different lie. There's no taking a lie and making it into the truth. You can't do it. It's not even possible. That's why it's so easy. The slight variances. You choose a slight variance. You compromise just a little. And from that compromise, there is literally no going back. There's no repenting of the compromise. There is no going back. God always starts with, you guessed it, God. And that's it. It doesn't start with your position of ignorance, your position of compromise, your position of falsehood. It starts with God. The only way to get to God is through God. You go back to God... And if you go over here and you say, now how do I get back to God from here? You get back to God the same way you got to God in the first place. I submit to you, if you're over here, there's a possibility you never got to God in the first place because why would you ever go over there if God made you a child of God? Why would you start to compromise? But it's so easy. In an ice cream shop, five flavors of ice cream, ten toppings. Ten toppings. Ten toppings. The answer is five flavors of ice cream times ten, I'm sorry, times two to the tenth power. That's the answer of the varieties. That's how you calculate that. The reason you do that is because, let's say you're going to have sprinkles as one of your toppings. Either you have sprinkles or you don't have sprinkles, that's two. Then you go to the next topping. you have chocolate syrup. You either you have chocolate syrup or you don't have chocolate syrup, that's two. But every time you have two possibilities, you have to multiply it by all of the other possibilities because you may have sprinkles and not have chocolate. You may have no sprinkles, and have chocolate. So it multiplies by all the possibilities. So it's, the answer is 5 times 2 to the 10th power. 2 to the 10th power is 1,024. There are 1,024 topping com- combinations. But there are 1,024 topping combinations for 5 flavors of ice cream. So the actual answer is 5,120. 5 flavors of ice cream, 10 toppings, 5,120 combinations, almost 10 years there are a lot of combinations. And you may go in there and you may say, I'm going to get chocolate, I'm going to get sprinkles, I'm going to get Oreo cookies. You may pick the, five, the, the ones you like the best. And you may eat it and you may go, this is the best ice cream. I'll never eat another kind of ice cream ever because I now am sworn to this flavor. This is my flavor. And you may go back for 10 years and get the same flavor. And in the 11th year, you may go, I wonder what it would taste like with just a dab of strawberry syrup. It's so easy to get off the perfect equation, the perfect formula, the perfect calculation of what it is. Except there is a place where the perfect formula, the perfect equation, the perfect calculation actually does exist. Do you know it? Do I know it? The answer is no. But God knows it. God knows the recipe for your life. He knows the variables. He knows where it's going to go. We just sang the song, God alone knows the future He has for you. You may be sitting here today thinking you're going to die. You may be sitting here today thinking you're going to struggle to grow up and become a man or a woman. You may be sitting here today thinking, I don't know where my relationships go, but God knows if you work the perfect combination and follow the commands of the Lord and stay faithful to Him, He knows that He will take you to a place that you could never go by any variance, by any calculation, by any choice of decisions on your own. It isn't over until it's over. But when I read the text, I see there is a time when it is over. Oh, it's so easy to compromise, so easy to make a minor adjustment, to make something important up near, but oh, you know, not, it's not a God, it's just important, but then you realize that you're taking some of the devotion, some of the, the attention, some of the worship from God and devoting it to these other times. We read book after book after book, but we don't read the Bible, oh, we discipline of myself. I'm reading my Bible every day. So we read the Bible for five minutes every day, but by the end of the week we've spent five hours on magazines or books or social media or whatever. You tell me if you budget your time this way, God gets five minutes a day, that's 35 minutes this week, and of my free time, of the time that I get to choose to do whatever with, anything else gets five or ten or fifteen hours. You're trying to tell me that that thing is not important to you like God? It's so easy to compromise. It's so easy to drift. But it's a problem. It is the problem. It is the problem of man's existence. Assuming that you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and become a follower of God, this is literally the only problem that remains. Because you're going to go to heaven one day and everything else, uh, cancer, car accidents, broken relationships, not enough money at the end of the month to pay your bills, all of those things are going to go away. But this thing is a problem that persists because it says in this text as we have read it that there can come a moment in time where you have chosen to be literally a king, where you're chosen to be the child of God and there's no coming back from this problem and the kingdom of God can be torn from you. I'm not talking about losing your salvation. I submit to you it's probable. Saul's heart was never for God in the first place. But what I am talking to you about is these variances that you can choose, these rebellions, this insubordination that you can choose on a daily basis. These slight variances can add up to take you to a place where you cannot come back from. Notice the second important thing in this text that the Lord really laid heavily on my heart. And that is that the reason behind why these things are so bad is that they have a continuing consequence. A continuing consequence. And it, I, admittedly, it is a continuing consequence that we do not know. God may say, you're driving down the road one day and, and you've been praying and you've been thinking, you're living for the Lord. And you come to a, <clears throat> a turn on red. And the Lord says, turn on red. And you say, but Lord, that's not the way to work or that's not the way to wherever I'm going. But the Lord said, clearly in your heart, and you know it's Him and He's speaking He says, turn right. And you say, I can't imagine what the consequence, why would I do that? Why would I not do what, what I was going to do? And you delay and the light turns green and you go straight instead of turning. You don't know what the continuing consequences of any decision can be. But God does know what the continuing consequences of any decision can be. Now you can understand that if the actions that God are, is asking you to engage in are radical in nature if he's asking you to take large risks, to get outside what he has already orchestrated in you, to do something completely different than what you've ever done, something that seems like a break from the history that God has created in your life, then the continuing consequences, by their very nature, must be very large. Does God sound gracious when God says, I want you to go and wipe out every Amalekite man, woman, and unchild, and unborn child, every last Amalekite? Does that sound gracious? But we know God is a loving and merciful and gracious God, that God would command such a radical thing, you'd be like, man, if if God is asking me to do something that radical, first of all, you'd be 100% sure it's what he wants. And then being 100% sure that it's what he wants, you would have to assume that you would not want to vary from the course, not in the slightest, because any variation will result in continuing consequences. Something that you can't imagine. So this guy... who who really (laughs) uh, figures pretty small in the chapter, the king of the Amalekites, Amalekites, his name was Agag. This is how good Agag gets it in the end. Samuel eventually has him cut to pieces in front of of everybody. Cut to small pieces is what the text says. But in the meantime, after the Amalekites fell and every Amalekite was slain except for him, he's the last living Amalekite some point in time in there, old Agag, he gets time with a woman. Now, should that happen? No, it shouldn't happen. He's free enough to lay with a woman in that time. Now, I don't know why that happens. I'm thinking Saul must have been treating him reasonably well. You know what I'm saying? So he gets time to lay with a woman. And he has an offspring that has an offspring. And pretty soon, there is a man born. His name's, anybody know before I say it? Haman. Haman the Agagite. Anybody recognize that name? It comes from the book of Esther. Haman the Agagite, an offspring of Agag, which there were no other offspring of Agag, Agag that survived because everyone in this text agrees that he wiped out the entire tribe of the Amalekites and all of Agag's offspring were destroyed. But sometime after he was captured, he laid with a woman and he birthed the child and that child birthed the child and so on and they got Haman the Agagite. Does anybody remember the role of Haman the Agagite in the story of Esther? He's an advisor to the king. He has the king's ear. He hates Mordecai. Because Mordecai will only bow to God, not to Haman. Esther is called to become the queen. Mordecai comes to her and says, you need to intervene on behalf of your people. Because Haman, the Agagite, has convinced the king to pass a law that says on a certain day that the Persians, where they were in captivity in Persia, was allowed to kill every Jew, every Jewish person. Haman convinced the king to pass a law to say that they could kill every Jew on a certain day. Now, Esther was a Jew and Mordecai was a Jew. That meant they were both on the chop block, except nobody really knew that Esther was a Jew. She's living in the household of the king and she was kind of in secret. And Mordecai says to her, "Huh? Don't you think if you don't go to the king over this that you'll be spared just because you're in the king's household? But I want you to understand that maybe you were called for just such a day as this. And she does. She goes to the king and the king, eventually, she does it in kind of a seductive way, if you will, but eventually the king passes a rule that says on that day, when the Persians come after the Jews and they, if they kill a the Jew, they were allowed to take all their possessions. It's like licensed piracy. Kill the Jews, take everything they have, their land, their money, everything. Anything they've got, take it. But on that day, anybody who came after a Jew, the Jews were allowed to fight back and if they fought back and they defeated whoever came after them, then they could take their stuff. So he made the law a two-way street. And Haman the Agagite eventually is found out to be the betrayer that he is. And he's hanged on the gallows that he himself built for Mordecai. Now this is generations later after Agag sleeps with whoever while he's in captivity under King Saul. And if he doesn't sleep with whoever, if he doesn't have an offspring, there's no Haman the Agagite. There's no person to be insulted over the fact that Mordecai won't bow to him like he bows to God. There's no person to suggest to the king, to push the king, to prod the king, to make a rule, to potentially wipe out the Jews. Do you think God knows that? Do you think Saul knows that? See, when you vary the commands of God, even the most extreme commands of God, when you vary them even slightly, you're messing with the continuing Consequences that God knows exist. You say, you know, like I'm, I'm too busy. I'm too busy to study my Bible faithfully. And in so doing, you send your children to hell. You're like, no! Don't say my children are going to hell because of something I did. God knows the continuing consequences. You decide to take Bible study off. You don't go to Bible study. And in so doing, you show your children that that's not that important. And then when they get older, they've got it in the back of their mind. Well, when I was... 5, 10, 15, whatever. My parents took Bible study. So I don't need to do Bible study. It's not important. The pastor stands up and you act like what the pastor says is just the pastor because that's what the pastor is. He's required to do that. He's a little freaky, but he's only freaky like that because he's supposed to be like that because he's supposed to be the pastor because God kind of touched him and now he's kind of crazy. Right? And your children watch you not follow the preached Word of God. You say, but I'm following the Word of God. But the variants that you develop have continuing consequences. You say, my child will never walk away from the Lord, I submit to you. What about your child's child? Or your child's child's child? What's on the line? This very situation that existed in Saul's life has existed in the church since the kingdom of God was made available. And men fail to live with the Lord, and not in our church, praise God, but in a lot of churches you go in and you know what you see? Women and children. And men won't step up and be the man that they're supposed to be. They won't be godly. And in our church, our women just wouldn't tolerate that, praise the Lord. But some of our men have to come without women because their woman won't do it or because they're single at this point in time. As a man, I submit to you that We can trust the Lord with the continuing consequences of following Him or not following Him. Simply put, hell is the ultimate continuing consequence of the person who does not accept the Lord and follow the Lord. And if you said when you got saved that you would follow Him, and then you some point down the road repented, now we have a contradiction. You say, well, I never. I always said I would continue to follow Him. But if you take a strong analytic look at your life, you will find things in which you need to act. You need to, I need to change this. This has to be different. I'm supposed to be following. I'm a follower of God. There is a contradiction in my choices. I have slipped to the point that I, can, I, I altered this slightly. I altered that slightly. And now I say, well, I will follow the Lord. But in, the, in this small list of things that I keep hidden away in a dark place that I never mention, I'm not going to follow God in those things. And I submit to you, when you've got to that point and you recognize that point, there is only one thing to do and that is repent and come back to the Lord as you did at the first. And if you do not, then you like Saul are causing a situation to exist in the heart of our God that simply cannot exist. The continuing consequences of our choices. We're going to read two texts. I won't, be able, I won't break them down for the interest of time, but I think you'll get the gist. First one's in Hebrews. Go to the book of Hebrews if you're following along. If you're taking notes and not following along, make a note of this reference, Hebrews 3, beginning in verse 12. There is no substitute for hearing and reading the word of God at the same time. And this is one of the few times you get an opportunity in a week to do that, so I do encourage you to do that. Hebrews 3, beginning in verse 12, this is what it says. Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. Now, this is written to Christians, or people who profess to be Christian anyway. And he says, Take care, watch out, <laughs> be careful, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. Ouch! But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. While it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest but to those who were disobedient. And so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Remember what it said? Rebellion is as the sin of divination or witchcraft because you have not followed the word of the Lord. And so on. One more text, 2nd Peter chapter 3. 2nd Peter chapter 3. It begins in verse 1, and it is kind of lengthy. I won't break it all down, but you'll get it. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Don't forget, I'm writing you a second letter to remind you not to forget these things. Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth, by His word, are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be restored with it, destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as also our brother, our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand which the untaught and unstable distort, that means they find variances or they make compromises, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. And then 18. 18. But grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Number one, understand that it is so easy. I got in a debate with a man who's quite close to me, his family. And he believes that he is a Christian. He believes that he is a homosexual. And I said, what are you going to do with this verse? And you know what he did. You know what he did. He said, well, that verse doesn't mean exactly what you think it means. What it actually means is this. And his interpretation of the verse is a slight variance. It's just barely off of what the actual wording exactly means. And I said, but but that's not what it says. I was a young Christian. I have been a Christian, not even baptized, a young Christian for two weeks. And I went to Sunday school at East Toledo Baptist Church for the first time I have been in Sunday school since I was five years old. And I don't remember a single thing about the lesson from when I was five, but I remember the very first day we were reading in the book of Revelation, and the teacher said, where it says in Revelation, that the streets are heaven are as pure as glass, are as gold as pure as glass. That's what it actually says, they are gold as pure as glass. And he said that the streets in heaven were glass. He said, they're glass. That means they're glass. And I said, no, it says they're gold as pure as glass. And we never got to have our lesson that Sunday, much to my chagrin, because I would have liked to have learned more from the Word of God. And I believe this person was a believer, and he was trying to do the best that he possibly could to teach or whatever. We spent 40 minutes, me, 25 years old, in a, man, in a room full of men, all of whom were... 50 or higher, and all but one of whom were 60 or higher, who'd studied the Bible pretty much their whole lives, arguing whether the streets of heaven are made of gold or glass. Now, ultimately, I get it. Who cares? I want to go there. If it was glass, I'd be perfectly satisfied when I get there, right? It doesn't matter. I'm getting perfectly satisfied either way. However, it does matter, because the Word of God says they are gold as pure as glass. And to teach that they are made of glass, because it says they are gold as pure as glass, is just Falsehood. If you vary the truth, it's falsehood. And who knows what the continuing consequence might be of someone believing that they are made of glass instead of gold when it says they're made of gold. But it's so easy. I've done it. I was teaching a lesson at East Little Baptist Church as a youth leader, teaching the teenagers. And I taught what the verse what the book said. The book said. Baptism was part of your salvation. You get saved and you get baptized. It's like two feet of the same statue. You get saved and you get baptized. That's why people were so quick to get baptized when they got saved because it's part of your salvation. And you and I both know that's not true. Right? The thief on the cross was saved. He was never baptized. Some people, the people that argue that baptism is part of your salvation will say, well, he was baptized by fire like Jesus did. He was hung on a cross. He was hung on a cross for his sins as a thief. Right? Judged in court to crucifixion. The bottom line is, baptism is not part of your salvation. And I knew that, but I taught the lesson as it was written. And then I had to come back. I think the next week, for some reason, we didn't meet. And the next week, I had to come back and I had to say to everybody that was in the room, look, this is what we had last week. But the truth is, this." this. And we looked at the scripture and what it says. I was teaching the material that had been provided for me and it was wrong. And if you think you've never done it, you're probably struggling a little bit with arrogance because you probably have. You've taught somebody the wrong thing. You made a choice that to you made perfect sense, a slight variation, a different set of toppings that are completely inside the bounds. But one variation leads to another variation and these compromises will take you to a place from which you cannot return. The last thing. In the text, Samuel is pointing out to Saul, and, and I think then to us, the sinful similarities that arise out of a haughty heart. This is how simple it gets. Literally every variance that is not straight up the truth, everything that you, every reason that you would find to not follow the commands of God exactly as they are written, every single one of them has this same sinful similarity. Rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft. Insubordination is iniquity, which is like lumps in all wickedry, wickedness. And idolatry, which is thinking anything is important, like God, worshipping, false worship, etc. All sin has this component to it, a haughty heart. You have a heart that for somehow would make you think that you know better than the God of the universe. And you say, well, I don't have to do that, even though God's word says I do have to do that. And that's a problem with your heart. And that's a problem you cannot fix. And he can. But you don't want to depend on him to fix it because if you did, you would have to do what he tells you to do. We want to live a life of content compromise rather than a life of content contriteness. We read those verses in scripture where it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we want to claim the promise even though we realize we are compromising on other parts of Scripture. Not doing what God has commanded us to do. Or not doing what we have discovered that we know God wants us to do. Or His Holy Spirit convicted us and it's in line with Scripture. And so our heart is not contrite before the Lord. We have not recognized that God who created everything then called you out of the darkness into His kingdom. As a God of the universe who literally created everything and will recreate it. Let's be very fair and realistic. He will destroy it all and recreate it all. That's what the scripture says. That God chose you to become a child of him. And if you recognize the amount of what is there, just how much God did to make you a child of God, just how much he did that literally no one else can do, then somewhere in there is a contrite heart. A heart that says, Lord, I only just want to be what you want me to be. I only just want to do what you want me to do. Not, I just want to do what you want me to do, but please let me be alive to see my kids graduate from high school. Or, God, I really want you to come. I really want Jesus to come and I want to go to heaven with you and come, but you know, don't make me stop working all these hours and making this money or controlling my relationships the way I want to make things turn out or insert whatever it is you want to do. If you have a pause or a clause or a variance or a compromise, you need to let it go. And let your contrite heart, a heart that recognizes who God is and what He has done by the little bit that you understand, lead you... To set aside many activities that you would otherwise authorize, and to adopt many activities which you can see from where you're sitting will make you uncomfortable. The sinful similarities that Samuel was pointing out to Saul, we all see them. We all know them. We all have them. We're uniquely different, everybody's unique. That's what makes us equal because we're all one unique person. But that being so, we all have that tendency to go, well, maybe just a dab of syrup will make better the perfect mix. Or maybe I just need to vary it slightly so it authorizes what I'm doing, and the grace of God will cover it anyway, won't it? We are called not to compromise, not to take the easy road, to recognize the continuing consequences and how we can never know what all they are, but He can. To see the sinful similarities and realize they do not arise out of the nature of what that thing is. You don't get to go, well, I will lie, but I will never rape anybody. You don't get to go, well, I'm not a murderer, but I'm sure ticked off at the guy who cut me off in traffic. You don't get to go, well, I'll go to worship and raise my voice to God and praise Him and really give Him praise. But when it comes to controlling my foot on the gas pedal, God's got nothing to do with that. You don't get to do that. A contrite heart, you're all in. Because the sinful similarities do not arise out of the nature of the sin. They arise out of the nature of your regenerative, regenerative heart. The internal you that has been changed by God. And if you willingly say, no, I want to vary it. I want to change it. I want to walk away from it. You are repenting or relenting, I'm not calm. You're backing down from who you said you wanted to be. Don't back down from who you said you wanted to be in Christ. You say, but I, but God is asking me to do something that completely breaks and is different from everything in my history, everything that's my personality. I, I have to step out and risk everything, or I'm, I'm. Because of who I am, I'm going to have to work 10 times as hard to do this thing that God is calling me to than anyone else would have to work. I can totally see how that person who sits over there can easily do this and he's not doing it but I know it needs to be done and for me to do it I've got to go watch videos and learn skills and buy tools and do all of this to do what it is that I see needs to be done because that person I'm just mad at that person because they won't do it I'm just mad at that person because there's nobody to do it now I have to do it and it's going to cost me everything I literally have to lay my life on the line to do this thing that God wants done that I know what you once done do you have a contrite heart or not? When God calls you out of who you are to be something new and different, completely changed, it's no different than salvation. And then you said yes. So now He's calling you out of who you are to be who you're supposed to be to do something completely different. And I submit to you that if He's doing that, it's because He knows the continuing consequences that you do not know. And you have to say yes to God and no to everything else. And that brings us to our conclusion then. And it is this. Why? Why should God regret? See, he said, God said to Samuel, I regret or I repent of having made Saul king. God said it. Samuel said to Saul, God can't regret. So did Samuel lie about God? No. What Samuel was doing is he was pointing out the contradiction. He was showing how it should not make any sense. It cannot be that the God of heaven who has authored all could originate a circumstance which would lead him to need to regret having done so. It cannot be. It's the eternal contradiction. So if you or I take the easy road, the slight variances, make the compromises, if we don't think about or submit to God the continuing consequences, if we allow those sinful similarities to take root and stick because our prideful heart won't recognize that we're screwing it up, we're the ones doing it, that's a contradiction. We, We can readily see the contradiction that says, I said I would follow God. And now I'm not. We see that contradiction. One thing is true or the other. Samuel is pointing out this contradiction that if God has made you a child of God, if you truly have been saved and brought into his kingdom, then it should never be so that he would regret having done so. Essentially, what Samuel is saying is you're the king of Israel. God made it so. When you thought you were unworthy and you were nothing, God called you out to make you the king of Israel. Now I submit to you, you never really let that happen. It doesn't make any sense that God would make you the king of Israel and then regret making you the king of Israel. That just doesn't work that way because God sees the past, the present, and the future in all possible variations thereof. So what's actually true, Samuel saying to Saul, was that God... Made you the king. But you refused. You relented. You backed down. You quit. I have a favorite line from a poem, which I am ashamed to say that until today I didn't even know the whole poem, but I've always loved this line from this poem. And uh, basically, I quoted the line like this. As I came to a, a... a place in a wood where two paths diverged and I, I took the one less traveled by and that has made all the difference. Now when I was unsaved, living as a sinner, I, I had this poem, I read it in high school and it had attached itself to me and I was excited about it and, and I said, I, I took the one less traveled by and that has made all the difference and I said that about taking risks, I said that about jumping my motorcycle over railroad tracks or drinking and driving, I said it about violence, of fighting, not you know, backing down bullies or taking a hit. I said it about all of these kinds of things, but I I submit to you, I have now learned by this message here today that I was misusing it. I'm going to read the poem to you, and then I have a kind of explanation, and we'll be through. This is what it actually says. It says, Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down, one as far as I could, to where it bent in the undergrowth, then took the other as just as fair and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that, the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing... How way leads on to way. I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh. Somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood. And I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. Let me tell you today what the road less traveled by is. There is a road. One well-worn way way. It is a sinful way. It is a way of compromises. It is a way of slight alterations of the command of God. There is a road that is well worn and many people have gone down it because it is easy. But I want you to say with me today, knowing that there's no way that you can travel both worlds and still be one person. You cannot do it. You can't go down both roads, a road of faithfulness to the Lord and also a road of compromises. You cannot go down both roads and still be one person. And since you are one person, I am asking you today to take the road with me that is less traveled. The road that's not beaten down not trodden down, not easy or smooth. The road that is rough and hard work and difficult to follow, impossible to follow without the grace of God. Let us go down the road the way that is not well worn. Take the commands of God at face value. Read our Bibles and stop trying to figure out a way to make them say what we want them to say, not even in the slightest, slightest, not even by the slightest variation, not by any compromise, but simply do what is therein written. Take the commands of God in our heart, and as the Holy Spirit fills you up, just do what it is that you know God wants you to do. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. I know where that place will be. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. We stand at that intersection right now, and I am asking you to take the road less traveled by no compromise, no backing down. I will live for the Lord Jesus Christ and do what he would have me to do, no matter the cost, over any barrier, past any burden. And ages from now, let us say, there we stood that day and chose the road less traveled by. Saul didn't do it. And from him was torn the kingdom of Israel. If you won't do it out of a love for God and a contrite heart, then do it out of fear. Because a loving fear of God is a healthy fear. Let us say, we took the road less traveled by. I ask the praise team to come at this time and lead us in a closing hymn. But if you're here today and you know either A, you have not followed the Lord, you have not committed your life to Jesus Christ and said, okay Lord, come be Lord of my life, forgive me for my sins and let me live for you. If you've not done that, then you do that right now in this moment. And you come and you say, that's me. I want to live for Jesus from now on. I want to publicly tell everybody. And Jesus said, if you'll proclaim me before men, if you'll tell about me before men, I will tell about you before my Father in heaven. But if you will not tell about me before men, I will not tell before my Father in heaven. So don't deny Jesus. If you're accepting Jesus today, you come. You come right here and you say, this is me. Whatever it means, not knowing the continuing consequences, but God does. I am going to live for the Lord. No compromises. And if you already have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ but you know you've been playing around compromising, making slight adjustments finding ways to make it work for you backing down from the tough things that God has asked you to do because they're just not the way you're wired, you don't just like it or i will make you tired or people won't like it whatever your reasons have been, you stop with your reasons and just do what God has called you to and today you repent and turn to the Lord as you did at the first and say I am living for God no compromises." And then let us all together take the road less traveled by. A road of no compromises, no rebellion, no insubordination. A road of grace. And then we grow in the grace of God together. Stand with me as we sing this song, but if you're responding, you don't need the same, you just come. <laughs> Baptist Church of East Toledo. I hope you are blessed and I hope you're growing and choosing to take the road less traveled by. So you can check us out online at churchtoledo.com. Lots of information there. There's also quite a bit of information in the text below this podcast. God bless you today.